Corinthians chapter 36. I'm sorry, 2 Chronicles chapter 36. <laughs> 2 Corinthians does not have 36 chapters. 2 Chronicles 36, 11 through 16. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke for the Lord, and he also rebelled against the king, king Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear allegiance by God. But he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord God of Israel. Furthermore, all the officials of the priest and the people were very unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations, and they defiled the house of the Lord, which he had sanctified in Jerusalem. And the Lord... The God of their fathers sent word to them again and again by his messengers, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, until there was no remedy. I'll pray. Lord, we again are just grateful for your mercies toward us and all the kindness, God, that you have shown us in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that you love us and that you are full of compassion, mercy, and loving kindness. And God, we pray that as we look at your word, that we would learn of your ways and that we would praise you, God, and yield to you and give you the honor and glory that you are worthy of. In Jesus' name, amen. Maybe seated. Well, I just read here from Second Chronicles, but you can flip over now in your Bibles to Second Kings. Second Kings, we'll be picking it up in the last of chapter 23. And this morning, I want to, um, I'm being a little ambitious here perhaps, but I'm, I want to close out um, the last four kings of Israel's history. Last four kings. It's been said, and I read this quote in Warren Wearsby's commentary on Second on Kings, that every great nation fell by suicide. And what that man, man said who gave that quote is that no great nation has just simply been conquered from without. They have all rotted from within. And they have killed themselves before they were ever attacked and defeated by others. Israel is certainly an illustration of that. If there's one sin of Israel that's, that is, stands out more than any other that seems maybe to summarize all that was going on was the sin of stubbornness. And we see it right from the beginning with Saul when God told him through Samuel the prophet to wipe out the Amalekites. And he saved the king and the best of all the livestock. And Samuel rebuked him and told him that stubbornness was as the sin of witchcraft. And then that seems to characterize the kings right through to the very end with Zedekiah being the one that we just read about. When our children were little and we homeschooled, we didn't start out planning to homeschool our kids, but it just seemed like the best option at the time. 
And there were no private schools that were close enough to us to put the kids in, so it was either private, public school or homeschool. Well, it didn't take very long for the kids to realize they really had it good. Um, and they didn't really know any other public school kids, but we would tell them, public school kids go to school from 8 in the morning until 3, 3.30 in the afternoon, and they get on the school bus when it's still dark outside, and by the time they get home, there's not much left to do but chores and eat supper and do homework and go to bed and start all over again. You guys get to be done by lunchtime, and you can play the rest of the day. And so they knew they had it good. And when they were acting up and not being responsive to their teacher, I had to come home and play principal. And there was one occasion, I recall, I lined all four of them up, and I said, your mom, the teacher, is really, really struggling. We only have one option, put you in public school. Now, I wasn't trying to scare them. I wasn't even trying to threaten them. I was just speaking the truth. And those kids, all four of them, no, Dad. We'll be good, Dad. We promise. Not public school. And they don't even know what public school is. Not public school, Dad. Not that. We'll do whatever you say, whatever Mom says. Just don't put us in public school. So thankfully, they were not stubborn. I know other parents who've had to go to such extremes with their children because of just rank stubbornness. I know one dad who had to get somebody else to take care of his son because he couldn't trust him to be in the house. I know another dad, a pastor, who had to tell his teenage daughter, unless your behavior change, I will have to resign as pastor. And if that's what you want, to just continue in your willful, stubborn rebellion, you can have your way. But it does have consequences for me. And I will quit being a pastor. So these are very real things. There's not, we're not just talking about kings and nations here. But this is, these things are here. These, these historical accounts are here for our own benefit. That we would learn from them. Josiah, as we noted, was the last good king of Israel. Very good king. He left behind four sons that we know about. Three of those sons reigned as king in his place. There was no other king that had three sons sit on the throne. But Josiah did. And one grandson. And so the last four kings of Israel are three sons of Josiah and one of his grandsons. The first of those sons was Jehoahaz. He's mentioned in 2 Chronicles, I'm sorry, 2 Kings um, 23, beginning in verse 28 and then verse 31, it says Jehoahaz was 23 years old and became king. He only reigned three months in Jerusalem. And then it says, verse 32, he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And in verse 33, Pharaoh Necho imprisoned him. This was the same Pharaoh that killed Josiah. And so three months later, this Pharaoh comes and imprisons Jehoahaz, takes him down to Egypt. Jehoahaz will never return. He dies a prisoner in Egypt. 
And so then Jehoahaz's older brother is put on the throne, and that is Jehoiakim. And we're told in verse 36, Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. It was Pharaoh Necho that appointed him king. He chose him among, could have chosen anybody, but the Pharaoh chose to put a son of David, a son of Josiah, on the throne. And in doing so, he renames him. His name was Eliakim, and he changed his name to Jehoiakim. Now, they had the prerogative to do this, to just change people's names. It was a demonstration of power. Um, that's a whole sermon in itself of how naming is a demonstration of authority and power. We see this right in the beginning in Acts, I'm mean, sorry, in Genesis where um, Adam is naming the animals and he gives a name to his wife. Those names, his original name, Eliakim, means God has established. Pharaoh changed it to Yahweh has established. Now, God was kind of the generic name for God. Yahweh is the specific name that God reveal, reveals to Israel. So this Pharaoh was an interesting guy. He could have named him anything. He could have named him Pharaoh Reigns. But he named him Yahweh Reigns. We're told about him, about Jehoiakim in Jeremiah. And by the way, the best way to, to really get a handle on these kings is to be reading the prophets at the same time, which is difficult to do. It's a lot to keep straight. But Jeremiah has a lot to say about these last four kings. And concerning Jehoiakim, who reigned for 11 years, Jeremiah says it was his practice from his youth to not listen to God. Well, he didn't listen to Pharaoh, and he didn't listen to Nebuchadnezzar either. This is just a, an obstinate, stubborn, self-willed man. So he was only on the throne. He came on the throne in 609 B.C. And he was only on the throne for about four years when Nebuchadnezzar came against him in 605 B.C. And at that time, Nebuchadnezzar defeated the Pharaoh, and then he invaded Israel, Jerusalem, and he takes some captives. This is the first of three times that Nebuchadnezzar will come against Jerusalem. And in this captivity, he takes Daniel and his three friends captive. This was in 605 B.C. Really interesting to dovetail what's going on with Daniel in Babylon with what's happening in Israel at the same time. For three years, Jehoiakim will obey Nebuchadnezzar. And at the end of those three years, he will rebel. Daniel is being trained by Nebuchadnezzar for three years. And at the end of those three years, he's elevated above all the other boys that were being trained. So this is again a parallel two tracks that are running here. We see on the one hand a captive and his friends in Babylon who are submissive to God, obeying God, and being honored by a pagan king. And then we have the kings of Israel who are not submissive to God, not obeying 
the pagan kings that God has allowed to be in charge of them, and they are being wiped out, not blessed. The contrast here is, is very, very strong. Three years, after three years, um, Jehoiakim stops submitting, and then he appeals to Pharaoh again for help, and Nebuchadnezzar is going to come back again. And so Jehoiakim will end up, his, his whole story is, is, is a bit um, complicated, so I'm just going to read my notes here a little bit. It says that when Nebuchadnezzar came, he took Daniel's plus some of the temple furnishings, and then he begins to rebel, and God stirs up the Chaldeans, the Syrians, and the Moabites, and the Ammonites against Jehoiakim. And we're told in 2 Kings 24, 3-5, that they were acting under the command of God to destroy Jerusalem because of the sins of Manasseh, which he would not forgive. It appears that some of Nebuchadnezzar's men, at some point during this time when after Jehoiakim had rebelled, captured him, and they take him to Babylon. And then somehow he ends up leaving Babylon, we aren't told how, escaped or released, but he goes back to Jerusalem, continues his rebellion, and ends up being killed, and Jeremiah says that he died and was given the burial of a donkey, meaning that he was not honored as a king because he was such a bad individual. And due to his renewed rebellion, it's not Nebuchadnezzar that kills him, but he's rebelling against Nebuchadnezzar, he's rebelling against God, and Nebuchadnezzar says, we need to make another trip to Israel. So he gets his army, and he marches down again to Israel for the purpose of taking Jehoiakim off the throne. But before he gets there, Jehoiakim has already died. We don't know how. And his son, Jehoiachin, is on the throne. So Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, Jehoiachin, grandson of Josiah. Jehoiachin only reigns three months. He's also called Jeconiah and Coniah. And this guy, Jeconiah, I'm sorry, Jehoiachin, or Jeconiah, Coniah, Jehoiachin was 18 years old, reigns three months, Nebuchadnezzar shows up, captures him, hauls him back to Babylon, and keeps him a captive, and he lives in Babylon until the day that he dies. This was in 597 B.C. that Nebuchadnezzar came. And at this time, he takes 10,000 people captive. All the leading people, many of the soldiers that were still there, and he only left the poorest of the, of the people behind. Part of that 10,000 um, person um, um, capture Dispersion was the prophet Ezekiel. And even though Jehoiachin only reigned three months, just like Jehoahaz had done, God pronounces a curse against this man. And this is recorded in Jeremiah 22, 24 to 30. And Jeremiah says, mark this man down as childless. He will never have a son to sit on the throne of David. Now this is very important because when you get to Matthew and the genealogy of Jesus, Jehoiachin or Coniah, Jeconiah, is mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus as being one of the 
ancestors of Joseph, which means that Joseph could have never sat on the throne of David because of the curse pronounced on Jeconiah, or also known as Jehoiachin. And so we don't know what he did, that in only three months' time that this curse would be pronounced on him, but it lasted um, for the rest of eternity, that no, one, no son of Jehoiachin will sit on the throne of David. But in God's mercies, 37 years after being taken captive, he was only 18, 37 years later, he's 54 years old. Nebuchadnezzar has died. His son is on the throne. And for reasons we don't know, Nebuchadnezzar's son singled out Jehoiachin and elevated him above all the kings that had ever been taken captive by his father Nebuchadnezzar. Gave him a daily allowance of food and even let him eat at the king's table. But he never let him go back to Israel. But he, God showed grace toward this man, this man who was so cursed that none of his sons would ever sit on the throne, and yet God shows great grace and mercy to this man. And so after Nebuchadnezzar removed Jehoiachin from the throne, he puts Zedekiah on the throne. Only that was not his name. And so we, this brings us to um, still chapter 24 of 2 Kings and verse 18. And it says that Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king and he reigned 11 years. So you see the pattern here. After Josiah, Jehoahaz, three months. After Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, 11 years. After Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, three months. After Jehoiachin, Zedekiah, 11 years. Don't know why God's doing that, but he seems to like that pattern. And so Zedekiah becomes king at 21 years old. And you'll also note that the middle son of the three that sat on the throne was the first one to reign. And then the oldest son was put on the throne um, and, and was expected to do the will of, um, of, of Nebuchadnezzar. But we know that his character was extremely weak, that he was not a good man, and that when Jehoiakim had, the, um, um, the, had it in his power to be good to Jeremiah, Jeremiah's death was being plotted, and the officials and the people intervened to spare Jeremiah's life during Jehoiakim, not the king. The king just said, well, if you want to kill him, you can kill him. And he would not intervene to save him. But it was other people that said, this man Jeremiah has done nothing wrong. He's not going to die. He was the king, Jer Jehoiakim, was in fact a weak man. And that's why his little brother was put on the throne ahead of him. Then when Zedekiah becomes king, we're told that his name is also changed. And so his name was started out as being Mataniah, meaning the gift of Yahweh. But Nebuchadnezzar changes his name to Zedekiah, meaning Yahweh is righteous. Think again of Daniel and his three friends. Daniel is the Hebrew name for Daniel. That was not his Babylonian name. All four of those boys were given Babylonian names that honored the pagan gods of the Babylonians. So they took out the E-L or the A-H, which gave 
reference to the God of Israel. El and Yah were references to the God of Israel. And here, Pharaoh and now Nebuchadnezzar, when it comes to these kings reigning in Israel, have not done that to the kings that they did to Daniel and his friends. Totally changed their names. Gave them strictly pagan, godless names. But not with this man. I don't know if it's maybe the influence that Daniel has had on Nebuchadnezzar. Because by this time, Daniel has already been a captive for seven years when Zedekiah becomes king. He's been elevated to the highest position in the land. He has the favor of Nebuchadnezzar. Maybe Nebuchadnezzar is wanting to be good to Zedekiah and gives him a name that is honoring to the God of Israel. Yahweh is righteous. Nonetheless, Zedekiah rebels against Babylon because of the Jewish nationalists that said, do not submit to him. Meanwhile, Jeremiah's out there saying, listen, this is all from God. We're getting exactly what we deserve. And now God's word to you, Zedekiah, just like I said to the kings before you, submit. Take what God is bringing to you. And if you will submit to this man, Nebuchadnezzar, and if you go out to him and surrender, you will live. But if you continue to rebel, you're going to die. And he wouldn't accept it. He allows himself to be pressured by the Jewish nationalist. So in the ninth year of Zedekiah, he reigned 11 years. Here comes Nebuchadnezzar again. And first he, he, he has to fight against um, Egypt. And so he pulls back a little bit from his siege of Jerusalem, which lasted for two years. They're eating all kinds of just terrible things, including their children, during this siege. It's an awful time. Nebuchadnezzar pulls away so that he can focus his attention on Egypt for a brief time. And during that time when he pulled off from the siege, Jeremiah left the city to go out and take possession of a piece of property that he had purchased under the direction of God. And while he's out away from the city, some officials in Judah accused him of wanting to escape to the Babylonians. So they accused him of treason, and they arrested Jeremiah. And they went and asked for permission to kill him. And Zedekiah says, do whatever you want with him. And so they threw him into an empty cistern that had nothing but mud in the bottom of it. And it says that Jeremiah sunk up to his armpits. And they left him there to die. And Zedekiah wasn't going to do anything about it, even though he knew that Jeremiah had done nothing wrong. And after some time of being in this, in this cistern, sunk in the mud, an Ethiopian eunuch appealed to Zedekiah and said, King, he is going to die. And the man's done nothing wrong. And Zedekiah had a change of heart, and he said, take 30 men with you and get him out of that pit. And he was stuck so rock solid in that mud, they had to, they had to put um, clothing underneath his armpits so that when they put the rope under his arms, it wouldn't just rip him off, rip him apart. He met then, Jeremiah met with Zedekiah at Zedekiah's request, and, Jerem and Zedekiah said, you have a private word that you can give to me. And Jeremiah said, the same word I've been giving you all along. Surrender, and you will live. If you don't surrender, it'll only go 
bad for you. He didn't surrender. And in 586, for the third time, Nebuchadnezzar comes back, breaches the walls, and absolutely destroys Jerusalem. Tore down the walls, burned the temple, and burned all the homes in Jerusalem. It is left a wasteland. And before he's done, he captures Zedekiah and his sons. And he kills all the sons of Zedekiah. And then he gouges out Zedekiah's eyes. So the last thing he ever saw was his own sons being executed. This was all 22 years after Daniel had been taken captive. Daniel's prospering. And Israel is being wiped out. These two parallel train tracks are to show us that it didn't have to be this way. I just read this morning in our scripture reading from 2 Chronicles. And just to highlight again what God was saying there, it's really a, a summary analysis of Zedekiah and all of Israel. He did evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke for the Lord. He rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear allegiance by God. Isn't that interesting? Nebuchadnezzar had been so, it appears, so convinced that the people of God were good people who worshipped the Most High God. He knew that they would not go against God because that's what he saw from Daniel and his friends. And so it's as though he says, if I can get this Zedekiah to swear by God that he will obey me, then I can give him freedom. I can pull back from making his life miserable. And Zedekiah swore by the name of his God that he would give his allegiance to Nebuchadnezzar. But he didn't. He stiffened his neck. He hardened his heart. And the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. Their response, they continually mock the messengers of God. They despised his words and they scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people. In the last words, until there was no remedy. God was nothing but compassionate and long-suffering and faithful. Over and over and over again. Speaking to each of these kings for all these hundreds of years. Until finally, there's no other remedy. Kick them off the land. Let them get what they deserve. Nebuchadnezzar will appoint a governor. No more kings in Israel. The governor was a friend of Jeremiah's, name of Gadaliah. And he obeyed the word of God through Jeremiah to submit to Nebuchadnezzar. But there was somebody of the royal family who didn't want a non-son of David on the throne. And so he stirred up some people and they murdered Gedaliah. And then they fled to Egypt. And guess who they took with them? Jeremiah. Amazing. We've gone through 20 kings of Israel, 19 kings of Judah, and one queen, 
plus the three kings, Saul, David, and Solomon. That's 42 kings and one queen. In these last four kings, the order again, just to highlight the events, in 605, Nebuchadnezzar comes against Egypt and Judah. Daniel is taken captive. In 602, thereabouts, Jehoiakim rebels against Nebuchadnezzar, and sometimes afterward, Jehoiakim was taken captive to Babylon, but later returns to Jerusalem. Jehoiakim again rebels against Nebuchadnezzar. In 597, Nebuchadnezzar comes against Jerusalem again. Jehoiakim has died. Jehoiachin is king. Nebuchadnezzar takes Jehoiachin prisoner to Babylon. Zedekiah was made king. In 586, Nebuchadnezzar attacks for the third time. He destroys the temple, levels Jerusalem, and Zedekiah is blinded. In 560, the son of Nebuchadnezzar elevates Jehoiachin. And in 538, the last statement in 2 Chronicles, King Cyrus of the Persians releases the Jews to rebuild their temple. There's hope. God remains good and faithful. How do you summarize two long books like this in the lives of 42 kings and one queen? Here are a few final lessons perhaps that we can glean from these books. Number one, Israel is God's covenant people. You can't overstate the significance of that. And they still are. And that is not going to change. Israel was faithless and treacherous. There's no getting around it. From the most graphic display of this that I know, demonstration of it I know in Scripture, is Ezekiel 16. Man. In that chapter, God says, when you were just a young girl thrown out by the side of the road to die, just an in, a newborn infant girl, and you were thrown on the side of the road to die, you were wallowing in your blood, I found you, I bathed you, and I took you as my own. And when you were old enough to wed, I married you. I entered into a covenant with you. And after I wed you and entered into this covenant with you, you spent the entire time playing the harlot. And your harlotry was so bad that you paid people to sleep with you. What prostitute does that? That's how Israel is depicted in Ezekiel 16. And yet that chapter ends with, yet I have remained faithful to you. Israel openly rejected God, his prophets, and his words. She completely embraced the demonic depravity of the world. In Jeremiah 3, and you can look at this passage with me, God will say that he has given her a writ of divorce. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 8, I saw that all the adulteries of, uh, of I saw that for all the adulteries of faithful Israel, I, I'm sorry, read it again. And I saw that for all the adulteries of faithless Israel, I had sent her away and given her a writ of divorce. But then a few verses later, verse 11, 
And the Lord said to me, Faithless Israel has proven herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look upon you in anger, for I am gracious, declares the Lord. In Isaiah 54, this incident of God divorcing Israel is brought back around. In Isaiah 54, verse 5, it says, For your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. For the Lord has called you like a wife forsaken and grieved in spirit, even like a wife of one's youth when she is rejected, says your God. For a brief moment I forsook you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In an outburst of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment. But with everlasting loving kindness, I will have compassion on you. And then verse 10, For the mountains may be removed and the hills may shake, but my loving kindness will not be removed from you, and my covenant of peace will not be shaken. So when Jeremiah says that God divorced Israel, we need to understand according to the context, and words are defined by context. This is not divorce like we use the word today. When we say that a man or woman can end the marriage and divorce and then is free to remarry as though the covenant has gone away. That is not how God's using this word. It's very clear when you compare Jeremiah and Isaiah. This divorce was a 70-year separation for the sake of turning Israel from her harlotries. And God briefly forsook her that she might turn away from her harlotries and turn back to God that He might take her back to Himself. He never broke covenant. He says the mountains have to, will move and be re, the mountains will be removed and the hills will shake before He will break covenant with Israel. He never broke covenant. They have always been His covenant people and they still are. He remained faithful and desirous of her. Calling her to himself, never breaking covenant. Israel had 20 kings, as I've said. Judah had 19 plus one queen. And throughout the history of Israel, rebellion, stubbornness. It's 1 Samuel 15, 25, where Samuel says, Rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination as, is, as iniquity and idolatry. Nothing has changed. When Israel was finally sacked for the last time by Nebuchadnezzar and taken into captivity, that was 500 years before Christ. They were allowed out of captivity, then we have the post-exilic prophets, and then we have 400 years of silence. And then it's been 2,000 years, 2,024 since Christ. So in the 2,500 years since Israel was dispersed and taken into captivity, nothing's changed. Matthew 23, 37, Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, 
who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were unwilling. Stubbornness. I don't know if this is a, um, a good um, parallel, but in the book of Revelation, where God is pouring His wrath out again, and Israel is the initial recipient of that wrath. It is for the purpose of bringing Israel to repentance and to faith in Christ. Scripture is very clear on that. And the wrath that's poured out comes in three series. When Assyria came against Israel, they came three times. When Babylon comes against Judah, they come three times. And in the book of Revelation, there is a series of seven seals, and then seven trumpets, and then seven bowls. It seems that history's, Israel is repeating its history again, even in the book of Revelation. And finally, we know that they will be saved. Israel has been the most blessed people on earth, the most blessed nation. But they loved the world more than God. Their security was God Himself. They never needed to have a peace treaty. They never needed to form a marriage alliance. They didn't even need to station their armies when they went to their feast three times a year. Regardless, they spent their whole history scheming for security rather than trusting God. They were a distinct people who did not need the nations but they traded submission to God for slavery to the nations, which continues to this day. Each king was proof that sin brings death and righteousness brings blessing. Yet most of those kings chose sin and death. A few chose life and blessing. At one point in 2 Kings, we're told that they loved vanity and became vain. It might be easier for us to relate to it and say they loved depravity and became depraved. In loving the world, they lost everything and gained nothing. And yet, God remains faithful and good and true. And at the end... In 2 Kings, Jehoiachin is being elevated above all the kings. And in 2 Chronicles, Cyrus is releasing the Jews to return to Jerusalem and rebuild her temple. These things have happened as an example for us. 2 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10. All that I've said here is true for us individually. We too are the covenant people of God. It's not the same covenant. God made a covenant with Israel, and God has made a covenant with His bride, the church. But God is not changing. He remains the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the spiritual principles here that Sin results in death. 
and righteousness results in blessing is still the same. That God can only go so far and then he disciplines his people. We will never experience the wrath of God. But that is not to say it is not a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God as a Christian. And the author of Hebrews in chapter 10 says that there is something worse than death. And it's that same passage he says it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And he does not mean losing our salvation, but it's not a good thing. As a child of God in a covenant relationship with God, we cannot expect that God is just going to turn a blind eye to our sin. He loves us. That will never change. Desires us intensely no matter what we do. But He will let us have our way. And there can come a point in the life of a Christian where God has to say, there is no remedy. There is no remedy. Paul had a lot more insight than any of us will ever have, that's for sure. But the Lord seemed to let him know in the case of the Corinthian church that there were people in that church who were sick and others that were weak and some who had died because of God's discipline. Why would we think that anything has changed today? We could make First and Second Kings Second Chronicles, all about the United States and what it should do. I think that would be missing the point. There's certainly application on the political level. And we would love for our presidents to live righteously, uprightly, to seek God. We'd love for both houses of Congress and the Supreme Court to all be God-fearing people. And we should pray to that end, that they would fear God. We should encourage and support good Christian men and women who run for office because they're in a position to make a difference. But these books are not primarily about what the United States should do. They're primarily about you and me and how God would have us to live lives of humility and submission and faith and obedience to Him. That's all he's after. And how good God is when his people just say, Yes, Lord, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it begins here with me. We can spend all of our lives moaning and groaning about our governments and what they do and don't do. And God says, How does this apply? Are you humbling yourself before my word? Are you taking to heart the things that I'm saying and walking in obedience with you? Is it going to cost you? Absolutely. Because you'll be walking upstream and everybody else is going downstream. It's going to cost you. Which one of the prophets, Jesus said, were not killed? But what this is asking us to do is to stand like a prophet when everybody else is chasing after depravity and becoming depraved, that we would stand like prophets. If you've not been to the San Antonio Rodeo, I would encourage you to do so. 
I tell you, that first five minutes, first ten minutes, is worth the price of admission. To hear that, that old crackly voice when that man prays. And I've been going every year for quite a few years with the students at his hill. And I, don't, I think it's the same man. I don't know for sure. If it's the same man, he has gotten much bolder in his witness as he prays. And on Friday night, he not only prayed in Jesus' name, but he said, God, thank you for your many blessings over this nation. But the greatest blessing that you've given us is the free gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. Wow. Worth the price of admission to sit there with 30,000 people and hear Jesus' name mentioned and praying in his name. Things are bad. They could be a lot worse. We can look and curse at the darkness. God says, be a light. And I pray that we would each be as clear and bold as that man who will pray in Jesus' name in front of all those thousands of people. It's costly life. But it's a choice between life and death. Choose life. That's the lesson here. God is good. Choose life. Why would we not? I'll close this in prayer. God, we need to hear things over and over and over again. And clearly you know that or you wouldn't have recorded the lives, the stories, God, of all these people. And we know it, God, even from those that are around us, if we didn't even have these books of First and Second Kings, we'd still have written on hearts around us, God, the same truths. That stubbornness is as the sin of witchcraft. That you hate it. You will not be blessed. And that a humble life is a blessed life. Where we tremble at your word. We say yes to you. We count the cost and know that our citizenship is in heaven, not on this earth. And we continue to, to try to lay hold, God, of that for which we've been laid hold of. And that being Christ and his glory. We thank you, God, for the, those of us, Lord, who have received Christ. It is, will always be true that to live is Christ and to die is gain. I pray that that would not just be a platitude, God, but increasingly be the reality in each of our lives. We thank you for the good that you are doing in this nation and around the world. We would pray, God, for Israel, that she would repent, that she would let go of her stubborn, unfaithful ways and truly turn to Jesus. We pray the same for our own nation, God. That there be a spirit of repentance, a fear of God, and a turning to you, O Lord. Give us grace, wisdom, humility, Lord Jesus, as we live as lights and salt of the earth. In Christ's name, amen.